And then you can have a seat. Again, my name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at Mercy Hill. Uh, thank you so much for joining us this morning. If you're watching online, uh, welcome uh, to you. And we're so grateful that you chose to join us from your living room or kitchen or wherever you might be. Uh, for those in person, uh, you get a gold star today for coming out in the rain. So congratulations. You can put that on the refrigerator. A uh, big gold star for you. If you got a if you got a Bible, you can turn to Mark chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible with you, don't own one, there are a few in the back of the room, feel free. You can get up right now. It's not going to distract me. Go and grab one, return to your seat. Uh, and if you don't own a Bible, you can take that home with you. We'd love, 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 love for you to have it. Uh, so what I would love for you, us to do just one more time together is just to stop and pray as we're opening up the scripture. We're just going to ask God uh, to make known uh, the truth of his word to us uh, today. Father, uh, would you shine a light in the text so we can see the truth that it contains? And Father, would you shine your light into our hearts uh, so we can see how we need to apply it? In the name of Jesus, amen. Do you ever have this uh, moment uh, when you were a kid uh, where maybe your dad or your mom, usually it's a dad, launches into a story? And before you kind of understood the way it worked, you were like, oh, this is a cool story, right? Like maybe it's about walking in the snow, uphill in the rain, 14 miles both ways or whatever, or uh, whatever it might be. Uh, and then you realize that the story is about you, right? It's not just a great story about like your dad or what he did. It's about you. It's about his persistence, his stick to and your lack of that. And about, uh, you know, I don't know. Maybe if you're pretty smart, uh, by the second or third time you heard one of those stories, you know, as a teenager, you're like, oh gosh, come on. You know what I mean? Like, I get it. It's about me. If you're dumb like me, I was enthralled every time. And then I'd be like, ah, oh, it's a life lesson for me. This is about me. And I got tricked every single time. What we're going to see in today's text in Mark chapter 12 is Jesus is going to tell a parable. A parable is just a story meant to teach uh, an idea, uh, and he's going to teach this parable, and about halfway through, we're going to get the idea that this parable is about some people in his audience, that he is directly pointing his finger at a few folks, and we're going to see what this parable has to say for us today. Let me just catch you up with the context. You might remember Mike last week preached from uh, Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, Jesus cleansed the temple. By cleansing the temple, really what that means is he just kicked everybody out. Uh, he's overturning tables, kicking everybody out. And then Mike taught us in conjunction with that, he, he taught this kind of living parable about the fig tree. You guys remember this from last week? And uh, the fig tree that wasn't producing fruit. And so Jesus curses the fig tree. And what Mike pointed out to us last week, that in both the cleansing of the temple and the parable uh, associated with the fig tree, that what Jesus is doing is pointing out that a new day is coming, a new way for us to engage with God, and it's not going to be at the temple, but God is doing something new in his son, that we're going to come to God through faith and the fruit, fruitlessness of our lives, the fruitlessness of the temple, the fruitlessness of the Jews of the day uh, is going to fade into the past. Now, uh, this makes people upset. So at the end of chapter 11, some of the religious leaders confront Jesus and they basically say, who, who do you think you are? Right? What, what, what makes you think you have the right to go into the temple and start throwing over tables? 
Who gave you the authority to act in this sort of way? And Jesus then asked them a question back. He goes, all right, I got a question for you. Was John the Baptist's baptism from God or from man? Now, the religious leaders don't want to answer this question because if they say it's from God, then Jesus is going to be like, well, why didn't you believe John? If they say it's from man, then all the people are going to go crazy because they all love John the Baptist. So they say, we don't want to answer that question. And Jesus says, well, then I'm not going to answer your question. This seems like a very mature exchange, right? Like, but then he launches in that context into this parable, Mark chapter 12, verse 1. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And when they took, and they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Verse 4, again he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He still had one other, a beloved son. And finally he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Verse 9, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him but feared the people for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. So Jesus in this parable tells a story of a a man who owns a vineyard. He makes it into a really nice place, a well-functioning vineyard. And as he's talking about the vineyard, really Jesus is riffing on an idea that would have been very familiar to his audience. It comes from Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7, where Isaiah says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his ple- pleasant uh, planting." And so as Jesus introduces the idea of the vineyard, his crowd is going to lean in. They're going to go, oh, this is a story about God's people. We've heard this sort of story before. And in Jesus' story, the owner of the vineyard enters into a lease agreement with some tenants. It seems to be that they're going to work the property. They're going to grow the, the grapes in the vineyard. And then at the harvest... The owner is going to come back and collect a portion of that as his payment for the lease, and they get to keep the rest. So when the harvest comes, he sends a servant to collect what is rightfully his. But somehow, and for some reason, these tenants have decided they no longer want to honor their agreement with the landowner. Maybe they had a massive harvest, and they're saying, hey, this isn't fair. When we set this percentage that was going to be yours, we thought it would be about this much, but look what we did. 
We grew all of these amazing grapes. Look at the fruit of our labors. Why should we give you all of this? We did this. Or perhaps it was a meager harvest. And maybe they're going, hey, this is a pretty high percentage. Like we're starving. We don't know what is going on or the details, but they decide whatever the reason might be, they no longer want to honor the agreement. And so the first servant shows up to collect a payment and instead they beat him and send him back empty handed. And then the owner of a vineyard sends a second servant. And Jesus says they strike him on the head and treat him shamefully. And then he sends a third servant whom they kill. And then even after the death of a servant, he continues to send a multitude of servants after servants. But the tenant's blatant disregard for their agreement or what is right continues to escalate. And they continue to beat servants, kill them, and treat them shamefully. So then the owner looks around and there's no one left. No servants want to go. Nobody's interested in taking on this, tax, this task of collecting a payment from these incredibly wicked men. And so the owner says, I've got one option left. I'll send my son. Now, this is totally ridiculous, right? I mean, if I was the landowner, I would call Guido and Dominic, and we would get a crew together and go settle this with a little bit of violence, if this was the Old West, we'd be forming a posse. There's no way that we would be, or you would be, sending a beloved son. But the owner thinks, they'll respect my son. Well, they didn't respect any of the other servants. They're going to respect my son, and he sends his son. The tenants see the son coming, and they say, oh, this is the heir. Let's kill him, and we'll get the inheritance. Now, I'm not an expert in estate law, but I'm pretty sure this is not the way this works. I don't know about first century uh, in Judaism, how it all works, but I'm pretty sure this is really moronic. They go, oh, we'll get, though, what is ours. They're so focused on keeping and grasping and holding on to what they think they rightfully deserve, that they are willing to kill the owner's son. So then Jesus looks at the religious leaders, and by this time, I am certain they've realized this story is about them, that they are the ones whom God has entrusted with leading caring for his people, that they are the ones who rejected the prophets of old, and they are the ones in the current moment who is rejecting the son, the beloved son. And Jesus says to them, what do you think the owner is going to do? I'll tell you what he's going to do. He's going to take the vineyard, leadership of God's people from you, He's going to give it to someone else. This story, while brutal, is really a plea. This is a wake-up call from Jesus to the religious leaders saying, you are missing what God is doing. 
You are falling in line with leadership in the history of God's people who consistently refused to see what God was up to. This is about you. The invitation would be, do something different. Respond in a different way. James Edwards summarizes this story and says this. Since the beginning of creation, humanity has sought to be like God without obeying God. To become lords of Eden rather than stewards of it. What is the sum total, he asks, of human history if not the attempt to rid the universe of God so that humans can rule supreme? The tenants of the vineyard are the ultimate expression of human rebellion. They kill the heir and seize the inheritance for themselves. What Edward just said is this story is not just about the religious leaders of the day. This story is about all of us. That since the very beginning, we all have tried to usurp God's authority. We have all believed that we rightfully deserved something. We all believed that we needed to grasp it and hold on to it. And that we all believed that God was just a problem that we needed to push to the side. We don't want his authority. We don't want his leadership. We don't want him showing up at our place demanding anything from us. We want to be our own landowner, or we want to be our own God. And I think this parable teaches us two things about us, but maybe even more importantly, two amazing things about God that should, I think, change our minds when it comes to our attitude towards him. Here's the first one. While we are persistent in selfishness, God persists in patience. While we persist in selfishness, God persists in, in, persists in patience. The tenants are persistent. Persistent in doing what benefits themselves the most, in rejecting what is right, ignoring any sort of agreement with the landowner. They persist in it. They're dedicated to it to the point where they start killing folks to, or in order to acquire what they think they rightfully deserve. But did you notice something about the owner in the story? He persists in patience. He sends servant after servant. He makes plea after plea. He extends opportunity after opportunity. This parable is really about the history of God's people. Jesus is pointing out God's attitude and his response to his people throughout all of history. That God's people had insisted on their own, in their own way. That it's all started all the way back in the Garden of Eden, but it continued all the way through the Old Testament stories. The Old Testament is at the very least an exposition of the human heart showing us that we are persistent in our own selfishness. And God's people throughout history had refused to obey him. 
and had rejected his representatives. The servants in the story are like the prophets of old who show up to God's people over and over again and says, hey, you have the law, but you're not obeying the law. You know what God longs for from you, but you are refusing to do it. And every time they were rejected, Moses and Elijah, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, none were heeded. But God, throughout the story of the Old Testament and into the story that we're seeing all the way through the book of Mark, persists in patience. That God continues to send representatives, continues to ask his people to obey, continues to ask them to heed him. That over and over and over again, God proves himself to be patient with his people. He proves Exodus 34 exactly right. We talked about this several weeks ago. His name revealed to Moses, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And God, throughout the Old Testament, proves that to be true. That instead of like you or me, settling this after the first time they treated a servant shamefully. God patiently and persistently continues to call his people to repent and to change. This isn't only true of the New Testament history, but this is true of us. Paul in Romans chapter 2 verse 4 says this to the church at Rome, believers. Or, he says, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Do you understand the question? He's saying, do you, even as a believer in Jesus, persist in your own selfishness, not realizing that God's kindness and patience is intended not to be an excuse for you to do whatever you want, but intended to draw you back to himself. That God's patience isn't him co-signing whatever is going on in your life that is sinful and wicked and falls short. But his patience is out of God's very character drawing you back to him. Paul's saying, are we presuming on that? Not realizing that God's patience with us is meant to lead us to a place of Repentance. Now, I think there are two ditches in the story of the text and two for us here right now, two ditches of our own selfishness. The first one is the one that's apparent. It's on the surface here. The ditch of religious legalism or religiosity. The Pharisees, the religious leaders of the story, in our own selfishness, insisting on our own moral superiority, insisting that we're the ones that have it together, insisting, like we saw last week in the temple, that our own comfort 
and our own convenience is more important than others. You remember when Mike talked about the court of the Gentiles and how they had set up the money changers in the court of the Gentiles so that people far from God couldn't come and worship? They were excluding people based on a sense of moral superiority. This is us. That in our religion, in our longing to be proved better than others, we are excluding people. Believing that some people aren't worthy to belong to our community. Perhaps believing that some people aren't worthy of our time or energy. That is persistent selfishness. But there's another one that may be more appropriate for us in this day and age. and It, it seems to be that, I, uh, that in response to maybe the religiosity of the recent generations, that there's something else that we need to be careful of, another ditch. I would say that this is the ditch of cultural accommodation. You, you remember the prophets said they condemned religiosity. Hosea 6.6, 6, for I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. What, what does Hosea say? Like, hey, hey, we don't need all of the ritual, all of the pomp and circumstance. What we need is actual hearts that love God. But also remember the prophets did something else. The prophets called out people for their lack of obedience, in particular, their longing to look like the pagan cultures around them. That the people of God had embraced worship, had embraced idolatry, had embraced all sorts of practices that made them look just like the cultures that surrounded them. And we too fall in this trap of cultural accommodation where we refuse to listen to voices who call us to faithfulness to God and we just look like everybody else. This perhaps is the more dangerous ditch for us in this day and time. That under increasing pressure of cultural change, we would abandon long-term, 2,000 years worth of orthodox teaching. Whether that be accommodating ourselves to materialism or consumerism or changing our sexual ethics based on the prevailing opinions of the culture all of that falls into this ditch. We love currently to call out hypocrisy, but we don't talk a lot about personal holiness. The scripture is clear. Peter says, quoting from God himself in the Old Testament, be holy as I am holy. We are called to be a people set apart to God, obedient to God's word. And even with that, 
even with our drift into hypocrisy and religiosity, and even with us running away from holiness, God is continually patient. That's the good news. That for you and me, even when we fall short, God is patient and kind and longs for us to repent. Second thing is this is all important because God has a plan. Number two would be this. While we persist in abundant arrogance, God persists in abundant grace. Is there any attitude we could describe the tenets from this text with more appropriately than arrogance? They believe they're above the rules, above the owner, above even the sanctity of someone's life itself. And yet the owner, when he should throw down, instead sends his son. If this was about any other father other than God the Father, we would say, like Jesus says in Luke 15 in the uh, parable of the prodigal son, that this is a reckless father. That he is acting in ways that seem to not make any sort of sense. Husbands, can you imagine having this sort of conversation with your wife? How was work today? Well, those morons down at the vineyard beat up another servant today. Isn't this the fifth one they've beaten up? Yes, it is. Didn't they kill these two? Yes, they did. Well, what are you going to do? Oh, I, I was thinking about sending Junior. Right? Can you imagine this at dinner? She would say, are you an idiot? That's our son. But this is a picture of God the Father's unrelenting grace. That even in our arrogance, even in our rejection of him, even in our longing to chase after our own way, God sends Jesus. It's grace upon grace. That's what John says, the disciple of Jesus, who heard this parable in person. He says, for from his fullness, that's Jesus' fullness, we have all received grace upon grace, grace after grace, more grace than we could possibly contain, an abundance of grace. And then John says later, quoting from Jesus again, John 3, 16, right? The most famous verses. says that it's God, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That it is God that gives his son. That God is the owner of the vineyard. Saying, I know you are going to reject him too, and I'm going to send him anyway. This is good news then for us. That no matter the persistence of the stubbornness of your heart and my heart, and no matter the persistence of our own self-seeking and selfishness, and no matter the persistence of our own arrogance and insisting on our own way, God is both patient with us and gracious to us. The 
Millard Erickson defines grace this way. Grace is that God deals with his people not on the basis of their merit or worthiness, what they deserve, but simply according to their need. In other words, he says, he deals with them on the basis of his goodness and generosity. It's the best news you could hear today. That God deals with you, not on the basis of what you deserve, but on the basis of his character, his goodness, and his generosity. Grace extended to you what you don't deserve. Patience extended to you when you did not earn it. Now, verse 10 and 11, Jesus points out one difference between him and the son in the story. One difference. He quotes from Psalm 118. He says this, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The difference between Jesus and the beloved son in the parable is that Jesus was God's plan to redeem his people from the beginning. He calls them the cornerstone. The cornerstone has been rejected. What he means is it's a picture. A, a picture of building probably the temple. That's in the context of Mark 11. A stone that doesn't seem to fit in the proper place. And so that stone is discarded. It's thrown away. Mike and I were working on the floor over here in the preschool and kids area this week. We cut lots of pieces of LVP that did not fit in their place. And the only thing left to do is go, I did it again and throw it away and start over. But Psalm 118, what Jesus is claiming about himself is that rejected piece is the piece. The piece of the puzzle that was missing for all of history. The piece that makes everything else make sense. Jesus saying the difference between the son and the story and me is that I am the plan. I am the thing that makes this all make sense. Or we could say it this way, the rejected, beaten, and crucified Jesus is the culmination of the entire story of God. Jesus saying the parable is about you, Pharisees. It's also about me. And the fact that God had a plan to rescue his people and in his patience, for hundreds and hundreds of years, he allowed the story to develop Longing, creating space for repentance for his people, but the whole thing was going to culminate in Jesus the Son. His death, his crucifixion for us in our place. Jesus then as the cornerstone is the final prophet. He is the one, Hebrews 1 says, that has spoken completely and perfectly about who God is to us. Jesus, this cornerstone, is the beloved son, the one sent to redeem his people. Jesus is the true temple, that Jesus is, is changing the way we interact with the very presence of God from geography to faith, that Jesus is the true sacrifice, that year after year, after as God's people made sacrifices to atone for their sin that was all pointing forward to Jesus 
and that Jesus is the ultimate substitute. That he is not the one tragically and surprisingly killed by tenants with God the Father hoping for something better. But he's the one who came to lay down his life in the place of the wicked tenants. That Jesus is the one who came to pay the price for people like you and me who persist in our selfishness and our arrogance. That's why he came. I love this quote from John Stott. He says, For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. That's what we see in the story. I want to be in charge. I don't want to be accountable to anyone. I want to be my own authority. While, Stott says, the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only men deserve to be. That's the gospel. That God, in his patience and his grace, sent his son, rejected by religious leaders of the day, crucified on a cross, but raised again three days later, in all that to take our place. We use a phrase sometimes, penal substitutionary atonement. Sounds like a lot, right? Here's what it means. That Jesus took our punishment in our place to make us right with God. It's the good news of the gospel. And he does it in persistent patience and grace generosity, and goodness. What does this mean for us today? A couple things. That the truth of the gospel should lead us to faith and repentance. Faith. That maybe some of us here today have never embraced Jesus as our Savior. That while Jesus' substitutionary atonement is sufficient for us, it has not been applied to us because we have not placed our faith in Christ. And maybe today is the day where you go, I am tired of trying to grasp my own way. Today is the day where I lay that aside and I just trust Jesus. Repentance, the Bible word repentance just means to change your mind or switch directions. Repentance is the mark of a Christian. That we would not only say in faith, Jesus is Lord, but in repentance, make him Lord of every area of our lives. And maybe today, you have been persisting in selfishness or arrogance, like the tenants in the story. Whether that be religiosity or cultural accommodation, whether that be refusing to follow God's leadership, and today is a day of repentance. Please don't miss it. 
God has been patient with you. Not so you could continue on this path, but so that you would change paths. This also, secondly, should be the mark of our community. If God is patient and gracious, then so we should be patient and gracious. Which means when it comes to disagreements and conflict, when it comes to hashing out hard topics, when it comes to being offended, when it comes to people around us falling short, that if we are to follow God's leadership in our lives, we likewise should be marked by patience and grace, extended to each other in abundance. And then lastly, I think this says something about our mission together as a church, as followers of Jesus. While there is hard news here, it ends with good news. We could focus a lot on what the passage says about us, which is needed, but there is amazing truth here. God's patient and kind, longing for people to repent and come to know Christ. God is gracious and merciful, well beyond anything that we could even comprehend, sending servant after servant, ultimately sending his son. And our friends and neighbors and coworkers and family members need to know that. They need to know it. Yeah, there is bad news. We're not as awesome as we think we are. But there's really good news. God's patient and gracious. And he sent his son Jesus to redeem you. And people need to hear that. I think it's news worth spreading. So, today, uh, perhaps your response is coming to know Jesus. Perhaps your response is repenting from an attitude or action, embracing God's patience and grace to you. Perhaps today that works itself out in community, that there is someone that you need to show patience and grace to yourself. And then maybe today you could leave just with somebody on your mind. And this friend, this coworker, this family member, this roommate, this person that lives down the hall in my dorm needs to know that God is patient and gracious. He's abounding in steadfast love.